Beloved, please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8. The book of Hebrews is the most Old Testament of the New Testament books. Uh, the author quotes from the Old Testament more than any other New Testament author. Uh, one commentator said that the Old Testament is the bone and marrow of Hebrews. And we find ourselves in chapter 8, which this chapter is the center of that marrow, where the author is bringing forth the glories and the excellencies of the new covenant by way of distinction from the old covenant. It's also interesting if you look at what could be understood as the four major link books of the New Testament, uh, Matthew, the first gospel, Romans, the first Pauline epistle, Hebrews, the first general epistle, and Revelation, these four books uh, quote and cite and reference the Old Testament more than most of the others. Uh, if you look at Paul's epistles, besides Romans, also Galatians is another Pauline epistle where he heavily appeals, especially towards the law. And even in Paul's writings, those are also the places in Romans and Galatians where he brings out salvation by faith alone. All of this has to do with what we just sang so beautifully of Jesus, whom we serve, Jesus who saved us, that he, we are satisfied that he is all that we need. The beauty and the glory is that in Christ, what we need, we have. We have in Christ. We have everything pertaining to life and godliness. Beloved, listen as I read. I'm going to read the entire chapter beginning in verse 1 of Romans chapter, excuse me, of Hebrews chapter 8. The author writes, Now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Hence, it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle, for see, he says that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them upon their hearts. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. And they will not teach everyone his fellow citizen, and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me, from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. When he said, A new covenant, <clears throat> he has made the first obsolete. 
but whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. This is the word of God that has been read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. Now, beloved, last week we looked at the first two verses of this epic chapter. And we saw there that Christ is seated at the right hand of God. The main point that the author brought out for us there, what he led with is that he is sitting down at the right hand of God the Father. We know that the Old Testament priests, the Old Covenant priests, never sat down because their work was never done, but he is sitting down. Verse 1 reminds us that his atoning work for us is done. To tell us it is finished. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken away. But he is also ministering for us, his advocating ministry for us, his advocating work on our behalf in verse 2 continues even as we speak. Jesus is not idle in heaven. Now, three words that will help us walk through our passage this morning is verse 3 through the very beginning of verse 8. And three words that will help us track what the author is bringing out here are the words reality, superiority, and necessity. And again, the author at the center of his message is, we have what we need. He answers the question why the New Testament is better than the Old Testament. And it's not because it's shorter. The New Covenant is better than the Old Covenant. Because the Old Covenant informed people, but it was never intended or designed by God to transform people. And that is what we need. We need a heart transformation. We need life put on the inside of us. We could say it this way. Knowing what's right doesn't give us the power to do what is right. The old covenant did not give the power to do what is right. The new covenant does just that. The law could never be the source of justification, but it could only be a source of condemnation. The law is like a schoolmaster, a tutor. It tells us, it reminds us that we fall infinitely short of God's standard of perfect holiness, of perfect righteousness. And as such, we need a Savior. So the author brings out in this chapter, brings out in our passage that his is a better ministry. It's a, because he's a better mediator. It's a better covenant based on better promises. So the first point that he gives in verses 3 through 5 is the reality of his heavenly ministry. And this is, in some sense, a repeat and an expansion of what we saw in verse 2, of the true tabernacle in heaven, of him being a ministry in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, a tabernacle that the Lord pitched, not man. And that is so important because God is the one that built it, not man. The author's point Beloved, is that his mediating, interceding, advocating ministry in heaven now is of such pressing import on the heart and mind of the author as he is writing to this group of Jewish believers that are being tempted to go back to the old sacrificial system. This present reality of his ministry in heaven is of such pressing import on the mind and heart of the author that he gives a repeated emphasis in verses 3 through 5. Verse 3, you'll see, begins, for, so this is the reason why from verse 2, for every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. And we've seen this before as well back in chapter 5, Verse 1, towards the beginning of when the author was really focusing on the perfect high priesthood of Jesus, 
Chapter 5, verse 1, he wrote, Every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. What the author says here is, Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Hence, middle of verse 3, it's necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. So the foundation was laid in the Old Testament, but the reality, the experience is here. And this high priest, such a high priest, as he said, we have, you and I in Christ have such a high priest. We read back in verse 1, he must also have something to offer. And we know precisely what it is that he offered his sinless life and his sacrificial death he offered up himself in chapter 9 verse 14 the author there will say christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to god or turn over to romans chapter 5 for a moment the apostle paul brings this out I want to draw your attention in particular verses 6 and 8, but let's begin in Romans 5, verse 1. Paul there writes, Therefore, having been justified by faith, as I indicated before, remember that in this book, in this letter of the Apostle Paul to the Romans, where he really emphasizes the law, he also heavily emphasizes faith. We are saved by faith alone. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, verse 3, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance brings proven character, and proven character, hope, and hope does not disappoint the hope that is resting on god does not disappoint because the love of god has been poured out within our hearts through the holy spirit who is given to us and now look at verse six for while we were still helpless we were hopeless and destitute at the right time christ died for the ungodly for one will hardly die for a righteous man though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Or the Apostle Paul also in the other book that I mentioned, Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. In Ephesians, Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. So, beloved, the something that this high priest, such a high priest, has to offer is his very life, his very death. Jesus fulfilled all the Old Testament offerings and sacrifices in one supreme offering, in one supreme sacrifice. Freely he loved, freely he died. Augustine said that the cross is the pulpit from which God preaches his love to the world. Because in it, in the cross, in this once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ, God's love is displayed, God's justice is satisfied, and God's wrath is quenched. And it's good and right and perfect in the Lord. Here in verse 3 
of Hebrews chapter 8, you see the, the many high priests had something to offer, but this high priest also has something to offer. Even the grammar there brings out this distinction. The first to offer there lets us know that that was a continual re- repeat. The old covenant priests continually offered. The new covenant perfect high priest, such a high priest, his offering was a single event. It was a once-for-all event. And we saw this already back at the end of chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 27, this he did once for all when he offered up himself. One died for all, once for all. It's finished. Again, nothing could be added to it. Nothing could be taken from it. And to be sure, his offering of himself took place on earth, but his past earthly ministry was in part in preparation for his present heavenly ministry right now. And that takes us back to the main point of the author here in verses 3 through 5 is the reality of his heavenly ministry. His absence even from earth is the necessary result. Jesus' ascension His coronation, his being in heaven right now is the necessary result of who he is, what he did in the past, and even what he is doing now in the present in heaven. Verse 4, now, if he were on earth, so the author continues this distinction, this contrast between the old and the new. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law. God had very specific requirements for the Old Covenant priests, for the Aaronic priests, for the Levitical priests. They had to be of the tribe of Levi. And the issue with Jesus is he was not of the tribe of Levi. He was of the tribe of Judah. So by virtue of that, he could not have even entered into the Holy of Holies without violating the law. He would have been disqualified on earth according to the law because, again, he was of Judah, not of Levi. That's one of the reasons why, in the economy of God, he's ministering now in heaven. We also saw in our beautiful study of Melchizedek how his high priesthood is according to the order of Melchizedek that in the Old Covenant, where priest and king were two distinct separate offices, those are joined together. So he is our priest-king, according to the order of Melchizedek, by virtue of his ministry now in heaven. And we continue on, verse 5. Those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. A A copy. You could think of this as a seed or a sketch. Uh, It's translated as example in John, uh, James, and in 2 Peter. And a shadow. We we know that shadows can't exist without the object that casts the shadow. The shadow can't exist without the substance. There's correspondence, to be sure, between the shadow and the substance. But the shadow is a distorted and imperfect and in some ways somewhat featureless picture of the real. The author will pick this up later in chapter 10, verse 1, where he says, The law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices year by year, which they offer continually, make perfect those who draw near. So we've seen this before back in chapter 7. We understand, I think, verse 11, we understand that the law could not make perfect those under the law, perfect. That was never God's intent for it. 
Uh, Paul brings out this dynamic by way of illustration in Colossians when he was writing to the church in Colossae. In chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, the apostle Paul there said, Let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. So the kosher dietary laws, the Old Covenant holidays and the very Sabbath itself, Paul is saying, don't let anyone on this side of the cross, on the side of the resurrection, on the side of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, let no one act as your judge regarding these, verse 17, because these things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now, <clears throat> having said all this, beloved, please understand this. The author of Hebrews here in our text, his intent, his purpose is not to reduce the glory of the shadow. There was glory even in the shadow, and his purpose here is not to reduce that. His purpose is to enhance the glory of the substance. In fact, in his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus himself taught that he did not come to abolish the law. Matthew 5, 17, 18. Don't think I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. So again, there was a glory to the old, but that glory fades away against the brilliance of the glory of the new. A flashlight has light, but when the sun rises, and it's a bright, shiny afternoon day in Phoenix, in Gilbert, the light of the flashlight just fades away. So also, that is what he is saying here. And then in the rest of verse 5, this is where he really gets into the reality of the heavenly ministry. He says, look at the text, just as Moses was warned by God. <clears throat> Literally, just as Moses is being warned by God. This is one of the examples where the author of Hebrews, when he quotes Old Testament passages, he speaks in the present tense, as though God is right now saying this to bring out the active, dynamic, powerful, binding, authoritative effect of the Word of God. Just as Moses was or is warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle, for see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. This is a direct quotation from Exodus 25, verse 40, but turn for a moment back to Exodus 25. God went to great length to make sure that Moses understood the significance and the importance of doing what he would do according to the pattern God showed them. God can say something once, and that settles the issue. What he does here is three times in chapter 25, he talks about doing this work according to the pattern. Look at verse 9. In verse 1 of Exodus 25, the Lord spoke to Moses. Verse 9, according to all that I'm going to show you as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture, just so you shall construct it. And then at the very end, verse 40, <clears throat> and see that you make them after the pattern for them, which was shown to you on the mountain. So God showed Moses in some way the pattern after which. I don't, you know, he showed him a heavenly tabernacle. What he showed him, we don't know. But three times he drives home the point. And beloved, the point here is even the shadow was minutely and precisely ordered by God. 
That was the significance of it. The shadow was precisely ordered by God so as to provide a showcase for the greater excellency of the heavenly sanctuary. That tabernacle in the wilderness that God commanded Moses to build precisely according to the pattern that he showed him represented a heavenly reality. And that is what the author of Hebrews brings out here to drive home the reality of his ministry in heaven for you right now. And beloved, understand this. When we go back and forth between the Old Testament and the New Testament, understand this. The New Testament is not merely a key to understanding the Old Testament. Perhaps a better way to understand the Old and the New Testament is an Act 1 and an Act 2. And both are necessary. Neither can stand fully on its own without the other. And to understand the reality of Act 2, the New Testament, you must understand the foundation of Act 1, the Old Testament. To appreciate, to fully appreciate the foundation of Act 1, the Old Testament, you must experience the reality of Act 2, the New Testament, the New Covenant which is what the author of Hebrews is bringing out here in chapter 8. And as we leave this first point, the bottom line, beloved, is his ministry is better. His mediation is better because it's in heaven. So that's the reality of his heavenly ministry. Now, in verse 6 and verse 7, the beginning of verse 8, we'll see the superiority of the new covenant and the necessity of the new covenant. First, the superiority of the new covenant in verse 6. And he says quite directly, quite straightforward, the ministry is better, the covenant is better. Because, of course, he's a better mediator, and this is because the promises are better. Verse 6, he says, but now. Which, pause there for a second. If you go back to verse 4 at the beginning, he says, now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. Then he picks up this thought, but now. Uh, for your Greek students, men, day. It's a strong contrast. On the one hand, there's this situation, but on the other hand, this. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a perfect, he would not be a priest at all. But now, verse 6, he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. More excellent, as much as, better, better. The comparative adjective better appears 12 times in Hebrews. Of course, a main theme of all of Hebrews is the absolute, infinite superiority of Christ. He's the better mediator. He has the better blood. It's the better covenant, the better tabernacle. Later on, the better shaking of the earth. I mean, there's many better betters throughout this. But it is concentrated here in verse 6. More excellent as much as better, better. His ministry, his ministry and his intercession his advocacy for you in the dwelling place of God heaven itself he's the mediator of a new covenant he'll the author will say in chapter 9 15 12 24 uh, Paul told Timothy <clears throat> in first Timothy 2 verse 5 there's one God and one mediator also between God and men the man Christ Jesus and it's a better covenant because it's enacted on better promises. It's interesting, the word promises, the Greek word that's translated as promises, it was used widely in secular and in Greco-Roman 
writings at the time. And it would be used to talk about a man promising something to another man. It would also be used even in pagan secular, or excuse me, pagan religious circles where men would make promises to God. But in the New Testament, <clears throat> God reserves this word, and this word promises only appears where God is making the promise to men. And that's reason number one why they are better promises. And it's not in copy or shadow, but in substance. This is the preeminence of Christ. He's superior to everybody and everything. The greatness, beloved, the greatness of the gospel is the greatness of the Son, the greatness of our priest king, Jesus Christ. So <clears throat> as we consider these better promises, we can say, well, where is that in the Old Testament? And to whom were these better promises given? Were they given to Abraham? Maybe they were given to Melchizedek. We spent so much time on him. And what we'll see even as we get to verse 8 and forward is the better promises were given to the nation of Israel in Jeremiah 31 and in Ezekiel 36 and even hinted at in the Torah in Deuteronomy 30 verse 6, for example. And the new covenant, what we see, for example, 8 verse 8 uh, Sorry, <laughs> verse 8 here, where he begins his quotation in this longest quotation of an Old Testament passage in the New Testament. He's quoting Jeremiah 31, verse 31, when he says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And as he goes on from there, we can ask the question, well, why specifically are the promises better. They come from God, and that's all we need to know. That's why they're better. But what, and, and why is the new covenant superior? And what we'll see next week when we look at verse 8 through the end of the chapter is the new covenant promises are ecumenical, internal, universal, and merciful. That's why they are better. And if you bristled a little bit at that first word, ecumenical, I'm using that word in the generic root word of it, uh, not in a way that's been a bit abused by uh, things in Christianity. But it's ecumenical, it's internal, it's universal and merciful. Bottom line, beloved, what we'll see is the, when God made this prophecy to the nation of Israel in Jeremiah, he says that this new covenant will reconcile man to man because it reconciles man to God at the end. And it does it from the inside out, and it's for all the peoples. It's ecumenical, internal, universal, and it's merciful, where God shows his mercy even towards our iniquities. And it's interesting, in the book of Hebrews, <clears throat> the uh, Gentiles, the nations, aren't mentioned once in the book of Hebrews. It's very unique among the New Testament books. And the new covenant promise was made to the nation of Israel. It will be realized in the nation of Israel when the nation as a whole, when a majority of the nation will turn towards uh, Jesus Christ and mourn for him as a son who was pierced, Zechariah 12.10. But even those of us, most of whom are Gentile, we are beneficiaries of these new covenant promises, of this inward transformation, which enables us to satisfy and be pleasing to God. We are beneficiaries when we are in Christ. At our 
Thursday morning men's Bible study, which I highly recommend for you men to go if you're able to go. <clears throat> this last Thursday, uh, Scott was sharing that in the very early days of Santan Bible Church, and I think this was in the couple months before I even came, somebody came up to Scott and said, well, and he wanted to know about Santan Bible Church. He said, well, what's your shtick? And I, I think your response was something along the lines of, well, I didn't know we were supposed to have a shtick. <laughs> but it was something along the lines of, how about this? How about word, worship, and love? The word of God, we're Santan Bible Church. Everything we do, and I'm kind of expanding now from what, but this I think what was in Scott's mind. Everything we do flows from the word of God. It's our final authority. It's fully sufficient to everything we need. And our worship, everything we do as individual believers in obedience and service and worship in the workplace, in our homes, and even when we gather together for the corporate praise and worship will flow from the word, <clears throat> flow from the truth of God. And truth that is true truth, truth indeed, will show itself in love. Of course, love first and foremost to God, and if we truly love God, then we will love one another. I hope I got that somewhat accurate. And beloved, that was said 14 years ago when our beloved church first began, and our core principle remains the same, the word, worship, and love. And Part of how this flows here is we understand that the presentation of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world is the responsibility of the church of Jesus Christ. What the world needs to hear, what the world needs to know, is a person the world needs to meet. And the world won't meet this person unless we bring him to them. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they hear without an evangelist is the point. So, beloved, the gospel, the new covenant, reconciles man to God from the inside out for all the peoples. And, as a result, reconciles man to man. So that's the reality of this heavenly ministry, the superiority of the new covenant. Finally, the necessity of the new covenant. In verse 7, in the beginning of verse 8. Beloved, one of the most beautiful themes throughout the scripture is divine necessity. Of uh, The divine necessity. In the Gospels, for example, you see it in the Dei motif. It, and basically, you see this, it is necessary, it was necessary, it was necessary, especially in the Gospel according to Luke. And we understand that this divine necessity that we see, whether it's in the Gospels or coming out here in verse 7, this isn't a necessity that's imposed upon God from the outside. This is a necessity that flows from God. It comes from God, from his eternal plan, from his eternal goodness, and for his eternal glory. And it was necessary in the economy, according to the plan, the eternal plan of redemption of God, that there would be another covenant. That's why, look at verse 7, you read, For <clears throat> if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. Uh, the first covenant, that's the old covenant. That's the Mosaic covenant. Of the six biblical covenants, the Mosaic covenant is the only covenant where there's an if-then statement. In Exodus 19, I believe, verse 5. The Mosaic covenant, the old covenant, is the only covenant of the six biblical covenants where it's built upon the people saying, the nation of Israel saying, we will obey, exclamation point. All the other covenants 
God says, I will, I will. And in fact, what we'll see next week in verse 8 through 12 in this long quote, seven times you see God saying, I will, I will, I will, seven times. That's why those are the promises. And that's why this new covenant is the better covenant. What he's saying here is, if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. There would have been no need. This is similar to chapter 7, verse 11, where just a chapter before, the author wrote, Now if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? So a reminder again that the Old Covenant was not designed for the purpose of perfection. But here he uses the word faultless, here in verse 7 and the beginning of verse 8, if the first covenant had been faultless. What he's saying there is the first covenant was, in a sense, faulty. But understand this, the first covenant, the old covenant, was not faulty in the sense that it's a machine that's broken and in need of repair. It was faulty in the sense that it was incomplete. It was faulty because it wasn't final. And again, it was never intended by God to be final. So this is not the failure of the Old Covenant. This is the purpose of the Old Covenant from the very beginning that it would not be complete. And we can ask the question, what's the alternative to an inferior religion that doesn't finish the job? And I I say that with a little fear and trepidation, inferior, but if the new covenant is superior, then we can cautiously say the old covenant was inferior in that certain context. So what's the alternative to an inferior religion that doesn't finish the job? Is it no religion? Is it self-religion? No, the alternative is a superior religion that does finish the job with the right priest, with the right high priest. And this imperfect system, imperfect in the sense of being incomplete, not final, brings about a necessary change according to the plan of God. So God's sovereign plan, beloved, was always that another covenant would come. And the main point here, again, with this group of Jewish believers who are getting pulled back is when the substance comes, don't go back to the shadow. Why would you go back to the old way of life? Why would you go back to the old vices when you have the new way of life, when you have the new virtue in Christ? And then in verse 8, he says, and this kind of takes it away even from the incompleteness of the old covenant to ultimately where the fault does lay. It says, for finding fault with them. You see, man's experience by virtue of man's faultiness was faulty, because man is faulty. So the fault is not ultimately with the covenant, the fault was with the people. We could say this, that the old covenant was faulty in the sense it didn't sufficiently provide for their faultiness. And notice this, beloved, when the people of God couldn't rise to the level of God's standard, God didn't lower his standard to match their ability. Rather, he provides a way of escape. He provides a substitute. He provides a new covenant, a better covenant, enacted on better promises. He provides a way to meet his standards, satisfy his justice, and show his mercy at full measure. And that's 
what we experience and are blessed by. The external and accusing law gives way now to the internal and redeeming grace that's at the heart of the new covenant. And understand this, there were people that were saved by God who lived under the old covenant, who trusted in God and trusted in God by faith. But also there were many who lived under the provisions of the old covenant who died in unbelief. But what we will see is in the new covenant, the new covenant guarantees the regeneration for all of its beneficiaries. It is spiritual in nature and eternal in duration. That is the beauty. And understand this, biblical Christianity is not about the imitation of Christ. It's about the transformation from Christ. The imitation of Christ comes as a result of the transformation by Christ. That is what we have here. And then after he says finding fault with them, it says he says, and he begins again, the longest quote from the Old Testament anywhere in the New Testament. Beloved, in conclusion, turn to 2 Kings 22. The situation is an eight-year-old king named Josiah has entered into uh, the kingship of Judah. His father, Amon, was a wicked king. His grandfather, Manasseh, was the wickedest of the wicked kings of Judah. Manasseh reigned for 55 years. He had cult prostitutes. He set up Asherim, pagan deities. He passed babies and children through the fire. He was a wicked, wicked man. His son, Amon, was wicked as well. But Amon's son, Josiah, we'll pick it up, 2 Kings 22, verse 1. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Jedidah, the daughter of Adiah of Boscoth. And he did right in the sight of the Lord and walked in all the way of his father David, nor did he turn aside to the right or to the left. And in verse 3, as you go forward, what happened is a man named Hilkiah, the high priest, he went into the temple and he found the book of the law of God. The temple had fallen into such disrepair during the wicked reign of Manasseh that the word of God had been taken from the people for some 50 years. The, the people had been absent the word of God because the temple fell in such disrepair. Hilkiah found it and he read it to a scribe named Shaphan. Shaphan read it to Josiah and Josiah tore his clothes. Uh, verse 11, it came about when the king heard the words of the book of the law that he tore his clothes. And what happens going on from here is basically God tells Josiah that God's great wrath on the nation is going to fall on the nation because of the severe wickedness. But because Josiah turned to the Lord and trusted in the Lord, he would spare them for a time. The judgment would still come, but he would spare them for a time. In chapter 23, going forward, the king sent and they gathered to him all the elders of Judah and of Jerusalem And the king went up to the house of the Lord and all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with him and the priests and the prophets and all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which was found in the house of the Lord. And then going forward in the rest of the chapter, Josiah went on a cleansing spree. He 
he burned down, he broke down and burned down the ashram. He ground them to dust, threw them in the river. He got rid of the cult prostitutes. He had a massive ref reformation in the nation of Israel. Uh, so much so that if you look at verse 25 of chapter 23, it says, Of Josiah, before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might. Does that, those words sound familiar, maybe from a teaching of Jesus? With all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. So all that to say, and this is our last reference, if you turn over to Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 1, the words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the 13th year of his reign. That was, that's righteous Josiah. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the end of the 11th year, of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the exile of Jerusalem in the fifth month. So, beloved, the point here is this. Jeremiah has been called the weeping prophet. His ministry, in a sense, began on a high point. It began with righteous king Josiah. But it rapidly spiraled down from that with his son Jehoiakim and then his grandson Zedekiah. Beloved, the days of Jeremiah were dark days for the nation of Israel. They were days of destruction and disaster. The northern kingdom had already been taken into captivity by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom of Judah was ready to fall into the hands and taken into captivity and be destroyed at the hands of the Babylonians. National life was in collapse. It was a time of Jacob's trouble. Jeremiah wrote in chapter 30, verse 7. And it is out of these ashes, Jeremiah 30, verse 7, that chapter comes right before Jeremiah 31. The point is, in these dark, terrible days of the weeping prophet of Jeremiah, it is out of the ashes of that that God gives these promises, the seven I will statements of what he will do. And you and I are blessed by that eternally and right here, right now, as we worship our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Please join me, beloved, as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you. <coughs> We praise you and thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for your good word. Thank you for the Old Testament. Thank you for the New Testament. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the work that you did on our behalf and the work you are doing on our behalf. Thank you, Lord, for all the promises that you give to us. Thank you for building this church. Thank you for the music that we sing, the joy that we have, the fellowship we enjoy. We pray, Lord God, that you will be glorified by all that we do. And Lord, anyone that is here this morning that doesn't know you, is not following you by faith alone, we pray, Lord God, that you would put life where there's no life. Draw them to yourself. Let them understand that there is punishment that awaits because of their sin, but you do provide a way of escape. You provide forgiveness to any who come to you to ask to be forgiven, to ask for you to be their Lord and Savior. And it is for your glory and for your honor that we pray, that we sing, that we do all these things. Amen.